It's late spring in Vanderhoof, British Columbia. School is winding down. The weather is getting warmer and camping season has begun. People are waking up from the winter hibernation and getting set to enjoy a beautiful summer ahead. Madison Scott was one of those people. Summer was her favorite time of year. Sadly, she would never enjoy those hot dog days of summer because on the last weekend in May of 2011, Madison disappeared into the heavy, dense woods of rural BC. If you are from the West Coast or are around Madison's age, you probably have heard about this highly publicized missing persons case, which is still ongoing today, just over 10 years later. If you haven't heard about the story, I'm going to take you through the timeline of her disappearance, as well as some theories regarding who knows what. This is Cold Canada, Episode 6, The Disappearance of Madison Scott. First, I want to take a second to briefly describe Vanderhoof and surrounding area to paint a picture of where we're talking about. The city of Vanderhoof is located about 60 kilometers west of Prince George, basically sitting smack dab in the middle of the province of British Columbia. It is surrounded by rural areas, dense with forest, large lakes, and trails to nowhere. The city itself houses about 10,000 people, but a short drive will bring you out into a quaint, quiet areas disconnected from the world. On the outskirts, you can find many popular camping areas, beautiful lakes that go on for miles, and tons of amazing hiking trails. So you can see, for someone who loves the outdoors, this is the perfect place. Madison Scott was one of those people. 20-year-old Madison was what you would consider an outdoorsy type. She loved her biking and any type of water sport. Her true passion was photography. Her photos can still be viewed on social media and the website created by her parents. She's described as 5'4", 170 pounds, with ginger-colored hair, and drove an early 90s model white Ford F-150 pickup truck. She wasn't a huge partier. She preferred to keep it low-key and hang out with her family and close friends. She grew up with her younger sister, Georgia, and older brother, Ben. The evening before the day she went missing, she was supposed to hang out with her cousin, Kara. We'll get into the events leading up to the disappearance in just a moment. On the evening of Friday, May 27th, 2011, Madison and her friend Jordan Bulldock, aka Jordy, set off to a party at Hogsback Lake, approximately 25 kilometers from the city. They left in the early evening in Madison's truck, toting along a tent and their camping gear. When they got to the campsite and started to unload everything out of the vehicle, they realized the tent poles were missing. Since they weren't too far from home and needed a tent to sleep in, they headed back to Madison's house to grab the poles. They got to Madison's home around 9.30 p.m. that evening. This was the last time her parents saw her again. The birthday party ensued that evening. From witness account, there were approximately 150 people that attended, which was not anticipated. Madison's friends that were there said there was a lot of people who showed up that were not their friends and described them as rowdy. It was also reported that Doherty got extremely drunk, fell into the fire, and ended up leaving the party, at which point five other people left. This account of events isn't super clear. Some people said Jordy wasn't seen drinking, but rather acting drunk as an excuse to go home with her boyfriend, Garrett, who was also at the party. 
According to attendees of the party, things died down around 1 a.m., which seems to me a little early. Madison was last spotted at the site around 3 a.m., but that timeline is also wishy-washy. Fast forward to the next morning, Saturday, May 28, 2011. Maddie's mom, Dawn, expected to hear from her later the next morning. After lunch, when she still didn't hear from her, she tried her cell, which went right to voicemail. This wasn't too alarming at the time because cell service was pretty shoddy in the area where Maddie was. But by the next afternoon, on Sunday, May 29th, Dawn still cannot reach Maddie. Now she's worried. This was out of character for her to not keep in touch with her parents. Dawn calls Jordy's mother to see if she has heard from the girls. To her shock, she discovered that Jordy was at work and had been home since Saturday morning. This really alarmed Dawn. Her and her husband, Alden, decided to go check out the campsite to see if they could find her. When they arrived at the site, they found an empty, two-tone blue tent, Maddie's truck, and all her belongings, but no sign of their daughter. When searching through her things, the only missing items were her phone and keys. By 12.30 p.m., police were called and arrived at the campsite. The police didn't find much. All Maddie's belongings were in the tent. There was a cooler at the site with a bottle of wine and a six-pack of beer inside. Her truck was near the camp in the same spot it had been since her and Jordy returned from picking up the tent poles Friday evening. After searching through the area, it was clear Maddie was not there. Search and rescue were promptly called in after the scene was thoroughly checked. Now, before I get into the search for Maddie, I want to go over the tale of events that came from Jordy at this time. Her story does vary depending on what you read, but what I've gathered is she told police she did leave that Friday night, but returned Saturday morning around 9am. This is the part where it tends to vary. Jordy says she went back to go check on Maddie and found the tent with its door wide open and everything inside looked like it was rummaged through. She says she grabbed her pillow, sleeping bag, and a few other of her items and left for work. She did not tell anyone this. She did not alert the police or even tell her parents. Instead, took the 20-minute commute to work and continued her day as normal. Jordy's boyfriend, Garrett, also went back to the campsite on Saturday, reportedly to clean up after the party. He said he saw Maddie's truck and tent, but the tent was not open. There are a couple odd things that stand out in these two stories, but I'll be coming back to that later. Back to the search. Maddie's parents stay at the campsite, and apparently Jordy and her mother join in on the search. Jordy reports finding two of Maddie's rings and an earring at the base of the tent. At first glance, they thought this was odd, maybe a sign of a struggle, but Dawn confirmed it wasn't unusual for Maddie to just throw her jewelry wherever when she was done wearing it. Since nothing was coming out of the surrounding search, they had to go deeper. This was a huge surface area of different kinds of terrain to comb through. We are talking densely wooded areas and large deep lakes, not an easy place to find someone. The search went on for four days. Divers searched the lake, which was 220 feet deep. Boats with sonar drove around every square inch of the body of water, hoping to pick up some clue. The air crew was in the sky searching the wooded areas, and even cadaver dogs were brought up from the States to help. 
Unfortunately, the search was called off on May 31, 2011, and authorities concluded she must have disappeared via a vehicle, whether that was willingly or not. This was not the end of the search for Maddie, though. The very next day, a group of hundreds of community volunteers kept combing through the area in hope of finding something. Boats, ATVs, and grid searches were used to examine the entire surrounding area. Also in this desperate time, the Scott family offered a $15,000 reward on June 21st for information on the whereabouts of their daughter. By the end of June, there were posters plastered along every street in neighboring towns. When the reward money amount didn't work, they raised the reward to $25,000 in September. In recent times, it had been raised to $50,000 and remains at that point now. So what about all those people who were at the party that night? Well, every one of them were identified, interviewed, polygraphed, and ruled out. There were a couple people of interest to police who thought they knew more than they originally told them. The odd thing about the story that stood out to me and a lot of other people was the relationship between Maddie and Jordy. Don told police and news that the two girls haven't hung out together since high school, and as far as she knew, they fell out of touch. So if this was the case, why would Maddie ditch her cousin for a girl she never even hangs out with anymore? Why was she invited to the party in the first place? She didn't party, and the people who were there reported they'd barely even seen her. She spent most of the evening in her tent texting with her mom. This was also speculatively confirmed by the alcohol that was left over in the cooler. It was barely touched, which would suggest she didn't drink and therefore was not intoxicated, which contradicts Jordy's story of them sharing a bottle of wine. As a result of the investigation, there was blood found on Jordy's sleeping bag. She explained it away by saying it that was last used in high school and had blisters which bled while she was asleep. It was never revealed if this blood was analyzed or if the story checked out. Jordy also told police she offered Maddie to go with her and Garrett when she was leaving, but Maddie declined. This raises another question of why invite Maddie to go to the party if she just wanted to leave with her boyfriend? Also, why did Jordy come back the next morning for her pillow and sleeping bag before she went to work? The campsite was in the opposite direction from her work, so she went out of her way to get these things that she didn't need. It was reported by Jordy's mother that the pillow and sleeping bag were stuffed in the washer as soon as Jordy got home. Apparently, they were dirty from camping. Even though Jordy didn't even stay at the campsite, used the pillow or sleeping bag, and didn't care to wash the sleeping bag before considering there was blood on it since high school. The blood that was found on the sleeping bag was found after it was washed, so that could explain why it wasn't analyzed or talked about anymore in the news. To further this, Maddie could have easily dropped them at her house when she was headed home on Saturday. This whole account just seems really strange, but I digress. I do want to go into two other suspects that police had. The first is an unnamed party attendee. There isn't a lot of information on this, although articles have said he was heavily investigated. It wasn't revealed if he was previously known to Maddie or if he was one of the people in the rowdy crowd. He was investigated because it was reported Maddie had turned his advances down and he was visibly quote-unquote huffy about it. Eventually though, he was ruled out as a suspect. 
the second, also unnamed, was a 28-year-old male who was unknown friend to Maddie. They were on the same softball team, and it was rumored they were seeing each other. He did not have the greatest reputation and was into some shady things. The theory spread that he was responsible for Maddie's disappearance. The theory was he owed drug money and some people took her as punishment or ransom. He denied these allegations and wanted to publicly clear his name. He did so by taking a polygraph, which he passed. The odd thing is, he went missing two days later. Two weeks after his disappearance, his decapitated head was found in a cabin in a neighboring town. Now, fortunately, his murder was solved quickly. There were four people found responsible, and police were able to determine the two events were not linked at all. Still, I thought it was worth mentioning because it does show the type of guy she was allegedly hanging around with. With no further leads to pursue, the case went cold. In December of the same year, just over six months later, there was a video reenactment of Scott's events prior to the disappearance. The video is linked in the show notes if you're interested in checking it out. Over the next few years, the searching didn't stop, but unfortunately, it also didn't yield any clues on what happened to Maddie. Numerous private searches were completed. The volunteers even made a special horse and ATV trail to use just to go looking for the missing woman. The case was reviewed by a second RCMP division, but nothing new came from that either. In 2012, the Scott family started an annual poker ride at Hogsback Lake to continue awareness and keep the case alive. The last one was in 2019, before the pandemic hit. To date, Madison Scott remains missing. Her family is hopeful that she is alive and will one day come home. There were a few theories that came to fruition over the past 10 years. One of these included her being a victim of the Highway of Tears. If you aren't familiar with these cases, basically there's a stretch of road between Prince George and Prince Rupert marked as Highway 16, which has been deemed one of the most dangerous roads in Canada. Over 80 plus Indigenous women have gone missing or have been murdered along the stretch, dating back to 1970. Vanderhoof is a more upscale neighborhood along this highway. Madison disappeared approximately 10 miles or 20 kilometers from the highway itself. The RCMP have an ongoing project called EPANA, which is a task force set up to investigate these crimes. It was confirmed that Maddie is not a part of the EPANA investigation. There is good reason for this. It would have taken quite a long hike to make it to the highway itself through extremely dense woods and nothing to indicate she was on her way there. The family was actually upset about this theory. They never wanted to think of her as a victim. She would never hitchhike, and it was a good three-hour walk to the highway from the campsite. Why would she bother walking all the way to the highway when she had a working vehicle with her? All the evidence pointed away from this idea. If you are interested and want to read more up on the ePANA task force, I've linked the RCMP website in the episode notes. The second theory was the animal theory. They were situated in a forest area known to have bears and other dangerous animals around. But this was ruled out as well. There were no remains, bones, or clothing found in the woods. Nothing to support she was attacked by anything. Now the next isn't really a theory, but more of a speculation. Madison's parents said she never left the house or went anywhere without her purse, cash, and ID. But all of those things were left behind. She carried a giant bulky keychain, and that was missing. 
So was she out searching for it? Did someone take it? It seems like a strange thing to take without taking your purse and money and not your vehicle. Another odd thing is that there was nothing stolen. No evidence to suggest there was someone that robbed her or took her. Everything was left behind. This brings me to the suspicion of her quote-unquote friend, Jordy. Everything about her story is just weird. I've watched multiple videos of her interviews, and although she defends herself by saying she was nervous, she seems way too nonchalant about the whole thing. I can't quite wrap my head around why she invited Maddie to this party. It's been a few years since they last seen each other. They don't regularly hang out, which brings me to another question of why did Maddie ditch her cousin, who she is close with, to go to this party at the very last minute? From the recall of events from partygoers, Maddie barely even participated in the party. So again, why was she even there? Maybe I'm overthinking it, but it all just all doesn't add up. Between Jordy's strange behavior, the blood on her sleeping bag, and the desperate need to go pick up her pillow and sleeping bag the next morning just shouts suspicion to me. Again, just my opinion on the case. Please go watch some of the interviews with her and let me know what you think. This year, in May of 2021, marked the 10-year anniversary of the missing woman. There are regular updates posted on the findmaddie.ca website and Facebook page. It was posted the family was not able to run their annual poker ride again this year due to COVID-19. Maddie would have turned 30 this year. Additional details of her appearance can also be found on the Find Maddie website. These include a bird silhouette tattoo on the inside of her left wrist, along with nose and ear piercings. She was last spotted at the campsite near Hogsback Lake. Again, she's 5'4", 160 to 170 pounds, medium build, with pale complexion, and ginger hair. There are pictures on the Find Maddie website as well as the Facebook page. If you have any information on the disappearance of this woman or any information on her whereabouts, the Vanderhoof RCMP asks people with information to call them at 250-567-2222. People who wish to remain anonymous can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or leave a message on solvecrime.ca. I know this has been long awaited and I thank you all so much for your patience. I will hopefully be back later this month for another episode. For updates, go follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Cold Canada Unsolved Murder or click the link in the episode notes. If you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, my name is Heather Curran and this has been Cold Canada. Mm-hmm.